So like any uh, responsible parents who grew up in the 80s and the 90s, Jill and I want to pass on to our kids some of those great movies. I mean, really, let's let's be honest for just a second. And I know at least one friend who, who one friend who will definitely agree with me on this is that the 80s and 90s, you know, some right in that kind of like wheelhouse right there was some of the some of the greatest films of all time. And it would be irresponsible of me to not pass on the greatness of those films to my kids, especially some of those coming and uh, coming of age films. And so our soon to be uh, teenage daughter, which is hard to believe, Emily, we have been spending time with her really beginning to watch some of these movies, beginning to introduce her to some of this stuff that we grew up with. Now, I will be honest about this, and some of you have experienced this as well. If you have kids kids in that age range, you begin to share some of these movies with them. Uh, they don't age uh, as graciously as some of us have aged. Uh, the movies sometimes have a little bit of a cringe uh, factor to them. Uh, maybe we start to look and say, oh, I, I don't know that they would have made that today. Uh, but you know, you lead into it and you kind of say, all right, well, this is what we grew up with. And then the kids look at you and they, they think, wow, well, that explains a lot about you guys. And so maybe there's a good factor here as well, that they get a little bit of an understanding of what made us who we are. And so Jill and I have begun to introduce Emily uh, to some of these movies. We've introduced her to them and said, hey, just watch this with us. And one of those classics is the classic coming of age film, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And so if you are a kid who grew up in that era, um, you, you know, like this movie is just sort of a classic. It's a coming of age. Uh, it just, there's just something great about Ferris. And so I think it just kind of connects across generations. And yeah, there's some cringe factors or some things that I definitely sat back and went, oh, I don't know. Uh, but as we watched that, there was something in it that I wanted to talk about today that I thought was really fascinating and really interesting about that film. Scattered throughout Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Ferris, especially right at the very beginning, he'll look at the camera just like this, and I think this is when he's getting ready for school, and he's kind of preparing, or actually, he's not getting ready for school, he's ready to skip school, and so he's kind of preparing, I think his parents have already left, he gets up, he's explaining uh, how he pulls it off, what you need to do to be able to skip school, make your parents, yeah, you know what, now that I'm thinking about it, I'm not sure what I was teaching Emily, but anyways... Ferris looks at the camera, and he does what we call breaking the fourth wall. He looks at the camera, he stops, there's even a list that ends up popping up on the screen at one point here, and he, and he speaks directly to the audience. He looks at us, and he begins to tell us what is happening, what he's thinking about that in that exact moment. And we've all seen films like this. We've all seen breaking the fourth wall like this. This happens at all kinds of times in all different kinds of movies. And so Ferris Bueller is one example of this breaking of the fourth wall. But we also find it in all kinds of other movies. We find it in literature. We find it in books. But one place you may not realize that we find this breaking of the fourth wall is in the Bible. And this breaking of the fourth wall actually happens in a verse that was um, the inspiration for the sermon series that we are in. The title series of the, the the title of this series comes from a verse. It's in the book of John, one of the four books in the Bible that tells us about the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And towards the end of that book, John breaks this fourth wall. He speaks directly to you and to me to his audience that he wrote it to, and he gives us all 
to that original audience that it was written to, to all of us today who continue to read it, he, he breaks that fourth wall and gives us something quite perplexing to think about that is an important part of the story of faith. And it was the inspiration for this series that we're going through about encounters people had with Jesus and the invitation to believe. So let me read that verse as John breaks this fourth wall. Listen what he does here. It says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. <laughs> so here's, here's John going through and telling us the story of Jesus, telling the story of his life and his death and his resurrection. And he comes to this point and he does this at different points throughout the book as well. He stops. It's like, it's like if he was telling the story in person, he stops, he looks at everybody. He says, now, now let me explain something here. Let, let, let me break the fourth wall of this story for a minute that you're engaged in. And let me give you a parenthetical citation because I, I don't want you to miss this. I want you to see something here that I want to tell you. That Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. Now, notice again what the author's doing. Breaking the fourth wall. Looking directly at the audience. And telling us something that we don't know from reading the story. And that's a significant part of this. So when we go back to Ferris Bueller for just a second. We think about Ferris. Ferris is getting uh, ready for his day. He, and he looks at us because you, you wouldn't figure this out from exactly from just watching. So he breaks the fourth wall to give you some instruction to tell you something, to clarify some things for you, to give you some information that you may not have otherwise known. Now, they could have done this in all kinds of different ways. They could have embedded it within the story. They could have shown us some different things, showing us, not telling us it. But here, it's like Ferris is saying, no, 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 no. I want to give you some information you otherwise couldn't otherwise glean from the story, and I want to just give it directly to you. So I'm going to speak directly to you. So John is doing the same thing. Speaking directly to us, telling us some information that we wouldn't know from reading the story. Filling us in on detail that we otherwise wouldn't have picked up. But I want you to see this. This is so significant. This is different from what Ferris Bueller did. It's different from what we may see in other movies. It's different from what we might see in some other books. It's different from what we might see when the fourth wall is broken in other books in the Bible. Rather than give us additional information, the author here leans into making sure we know that we don't have it. Now listen to that again, because this is kind of strange and this is different for us. Rather than giving us additional information, as the fourth wall is broken, the author of, of John leans in and makes sure that we know we don't have all the information. Rather than giving us more facts about Jesus, he tells us that we don't have them. And then he tells us that he did this on purpose. We go on, we go to John 20, verse 31, right after this. It says, but these are written. Okay, so Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So Jesus did all these other signs, all these other things in the presence of his disciples, which aren't recorded here. We're not going to tell you about them, is what John is saying. 
But the signs that are recorded here, the stories that are written down here, are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, that by believing, you may have life in his name. Now these words are at the end of chapter 20, the chapter that is about the resurrection of Jesus. Last week on Easter, we looked at this chapter, at the beginning of the chapter. We focused on a follower of Jesus named Mary, who came to the tomb and found it empty, who encountered Jesus, who was invited to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And then at the end of that story, she's encouraged to go and share the good news that Jesus is alive, that Jesus has been resurrected, and to share that with the disciples. Now today, we turn to the disciples. We continue reading in this chapter. We get to the next part of this, and we see the disciples and their encounter now with the risen Jesus. So last week we looked at this and we saw that two disciples went running to this tomb. They discover that, that he's not there. They go back to these other disciples. Mary stuck around. She has an encounter with the risen Jesus. She's told to go back and tell the disciples. So now we come to them. We say, well, now what's happening with them? What, what is their experience here? And what happens when they encounter the risen Jesus? So let's back up. Let, let's see what happens here. And I want to see why John decided in this chapter, at the end of this chapter, after telling us this, why he broke the fourth wall and what we can learn from it. Why, why is John saying, listen, you don't have all the information. L listen, I want to give you a parenthetical citation here. I want to provide you with the knowledge that you don't know the whole story, but why I'm telling you it and why I want you to believe. So let's see what he says. We're going to start in John 20, verse 19. It says this, On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Now I'm going to read that one more time. I want you to hear this. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked, Jesus came stood among them and said, peace be with you. Now, I love this. I love how the author puts these two stories side by side. Again, if we back up, we would read the verses that we read last week about Mary, her unbelievable encounter with Jesus at the empty tomb. I told you that the two other disciples show up at that story, but unlike Mary, they didn't stick around. They didn't encounter the risen Jesus. Instead, they ran back to this, to this room where they were staying, cowering in fear with the other disciples. So you've got Mary, who sticks around at this empty tomb, who, who, who goes in, who has an encounter with the risen Jesus. And the author sits these stories side by side. It's almost, it's, it's so interesting to me because you, you kind of wonder, okay, well, why, why in this direction? Why is the story told this way? And so we first have Mary who encounters Jesus, shares the good news. And then right next to that story, we have these disciples. These two that run back, they go to these other disciples. And then what we find here is what they said. They, they locked the doors for fear. 
See, see, they didn't have the encounter with the risen Jesus that Mary had. When the two disciples ran back to the other disciples, they don't have the story yet that he has risen. They, they ran back and they believe his body is stolen. They believe that somebody is either playing a, a really cruel prank, um, that, that maybe this is going to be the continuation of persecution of Jesus and his followers in those, those days right there after the crucifixion of Jesus, that the violence is going to continue. So they're afraid. They're afraid. They, they don't want to go looking for Jesus. They're, he is To them, he is dead. He is gone. And they're cowering in fear. They lock the doors. They're probably hushed and quiet and you know, nobody's saying anything. Maybe nobody knows we're here. Let's just, let's just be quiet. And then through these locked doors, as these disciples cower in fear, after the crucifixion, the death of Jesus... Jesus entered the room. And we're reminded here that something really very wild is going on. Again, John is clear. The author of John is, is super clear here. The doors are locked. And then Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. He tells us the doors are locked to show us another sign here. We talked about this last week. It's a crucial part of our understanding of the story. This wasn't just a resuscitated Jesus. This isn't, this isn't a Jesus who has simply uh, begun to breathe again. This, this isn't a, a Jesus who, whose body has simply just woken up. This is a resurrected Jesus. And there is a significant difference between resuscitation and resurrection when it comes to Jesus. The way to talk about this is that his body has been glorified. His body has been resurrected. It's why Mary and the disciples didn't immediately recognize Jesus. When Mary encountered the risen Jesus, she thought he was a gardener, as we talked about last week. She didn't recognize him because he didn't look quite the same. Something had changed about him. He was resurrected. He was glorified. It's this reminder that what, what God does through resurrection is he makes things new. It's not simply restored. It's restored and made new. And this is a significant part of the story, and this is a significant thing for us to comprehend and think about, that what God did to Jesus through the resurrection is complete transformation. And into this mystery, into this experience then, you know, as the disciples are sitting there, all of a sudden, this person shows up through locked doors. Again, they're afraid. And you have to wonder, who, who's this? Who, who is this that just got in the room? They begin to look around. And into this mystery and into this moment and into this fear, Jesus said some familiar words to the disciples. Peace be with you. And in this simple greeting, Jesus reassured them. This is a common greeting. Peace be with you. Good morning. Good afternoon. This is just a simple hello. It, it, it's simple but it's also very profound. I don't know if they had time to react what just happened. 
this glorified body showing up in the room. But Jesus comes with familiar peace, familiar words, setting the stage then for them to recognize him the way that Mary had hours earlier. So we read on and it continues. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, just like Mary, something had changed. Through the mystery and glory of Jesus' resurrected body, the disciples saw someone familiar. So in Mary's experience, Mary comes into this moment. She thinks he's the gardener. He looks at her. He begins to talk. And in that moment, she looks at him. Jesus. She knows it. She sees him. He, he, he is resurrected. He is glorified. There is a mystery here. She doesn't immediately recognize him until something changes. Something happens in that moment that she recognizes Jesus. The same thing is true here. The glorified, the resurrected Jesus comes in all of his glory into this room. They don't know who it is. He says, peace be with you. And then he shows his hands and his sides. So there is something familiar here then they recognize that it is Jesus. They saw at that moment the Jesus that they had always known. In that moment, though he was glorified and resurrected, they saw their teacher, their savior, and their friend. But not all of them did. And that's what the story is about. So John 20, verse 24. It says, Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So this is the inner circle. This is the inner circle of Jesus' followers who had been with him, teaching with him, learning from him throughout these years of ministry of Jesus' life. The, the author here tells us, now Thomas, who was one of these 12, who was a part of this inner circle, was not with the disciples in that moment. And we're not told where Thomas was, when everyone else locked themselves in that room. The author doesn't break the fourth wall for us and explain to us what Thomas was doing, so we have a little bit of freedom here to conjecture. We all process things differently, so I, I wonder, again, I'm not assured of this, I don't have knowledge of this, but I wonder if Thomas just wanted to be left alone to grieve. If you've lost someone important in your life, we all process things differently. Some of us need different types of things to experience that. I've thought about that a lot over this last year as I lost my dad, and I began to think about that I, I'm going to grieve differently than maybe someone else might grieve. And one of the important things we can do is we can share that. This is how I need to grieve. Or, or someone, if, if you know someone who's lost someone, one of the things you can do is you can begin to ask them, what, what do you need in this moment? Don't assume what they need, ask them. What, what do you need in this grieving process? And, and I think there's a little bit of that here. These are 12 very different people grieving in very different ways. Jesus, Jesus is their friend. They believe in Jesus. Then they lose Jesus. And then they begin to grieve. So I wonder, did Thomas just simply want to be left alone? Was he walking the streets? Was he processing with, with his thoughts? 
We don't really know. That seems to be a plausible idea here. But then we see that he came back. And then the other disciples filled him in on their incredible encounter with the risen Jesus. Now, I want you to think about this. So, so again, deep, deep, deep sense of grief. A, a deep sense of grief that fills your eyes with tears in such a way that you can't even see. Just walking the streets, coming back to this room, and then all of a sudden, these people, some, some of your closest friends over the last few years, they look at you and they say, Thomas, the most incredible thing happened while you were gone. Jesus showed up. Now, how would you react to that? What would you think in that moment? How, how would you answer what they're telling you? Let's, let's see what happens. It says, so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, put my finger where the nails were, put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now listen, I, I can't fault him for this at all. If this is me, I, I kind of think about this and I put this in the way that I would have said this. These friends of mine, these people that I trust, look at me and say, we have seen the Lord. Looks and says, give me a break. Are you kidding me? No, I'm not going to believe that unless I see the nails and put my fingers where they were, put my hands in his side. I'm not going to believe that. We've all been there. We've all been told something. We found it too hard to believe. A colloquial translation of this verse would probably be something like this. Yeah, I'll believe that when I see it. And again, I don't think, I think it's, and I'll get to this in a second, I think it's a little unfair that this is doubting Thomas. Of course he doubted. And we talked about this last week on Easter. Nobody was standing in front of the tomb waiting for a countdown for Jesus to be resurrected. They didn't have a clock above the, above the stone. They didn't have something connected to it that when the clock reads zero, just like the way the ball falls in Times Square, the stone rolls away. Now, we do that in the church today because we know the end of the story. They did not. The fourth wall hasn't been broken for them the, fourth, the way the fourth wall has been broken for us. For 2,000 years, we've been able to process, we've been able to have parenthetical citation come around and explain this incredible mystery of the life, the death on the cross, and the resurrection of Jesus. They didn't have that. They weren't sitting there counting down 10, 9, 8, so here it comes, the stone is going to roll. They just didn't have that. So they're in this room going, wait, what is going on? They're the first people to literally sit there and go, what is happening what does this mean? One of the most important questions that we can ask about the resurrection still to this day, what does this mean? The same questions we can ask about the cross, what does this mean? And that's the beauty of the mystery of the cross. It's the beauty of the mystery of the resurrection of Jesus. <laughs> Later on, another author and a, 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 a follower of Jesus named Paul talks about that this is a mystery it's it, it seems like foolishness to people it doesn't see so he's saying there will be questions lean into those questions don't be afraid of the questions if you're if you're saying ryan this doesn't make any sense this story is nuts 
course it is. It's about a man, fully God, the incarnation, present among us, who is sent to a cross, who is killed at a cross, who is then resurrected through the power of God into new life. Of course there's mystery there. Of course there's questions. And so when you come to this man named Thomas, you should lean in with him. I don't want to be on the other side with these disciples yet. I want to be Thomas. What does this mean? I don't know. Are you sure? These are great questions to begin to ask. So if you're asking questions, keep asking questions. Uncertainty and doubt are a huge part of the story. Uncertainty and doubt are not the enemy of faith. They are the friend of faith. Sometimes, as we discover, and it takes some time to recognize this, it's the certainty. It's the not being able to waver. It's, it's the not being able to handle the curveball that comes into our life. That can be the enemy of faith. But questions and doubt, those are great, those are great partners of faith. I want to continue to show you why. Last week, we saw that the disciples and Mary were convinced someone had stolen the body. Again, they weren't anticipating Jesus' resurrection. It took seeing Jesus, hearing his voice for them to believe that the unbelievable had taken place. And the same is true for Thomas. So let's go on. It says a week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked. Okay, so the doors were locked again. A week later, Mary had encountered Jesus. They had encountered Jesus. They are still afraid. And the doors are locked and Jesus makes an appearance again. And he says, peace be with you. And this time it's word for word. This is almost word for word is verse 19. But this time it tells us that Thomas was there. It was his turn. And I love this. For a week these people are sitting a week after the resurrection of Jesus. You would think that God would be like, you guys got to get moving. It's a week after the resurrection. Let's get telling people about this thing. Instead, instead of that, God allows Thomas and these disciples to sit in their questions, to sit in their fear, to sit in their doubts. If you have any question, if God is able to meet you exactly where you're at, Find some relief in this story. This is after the resurrection. This is the closest followers of Jesus. These are the people who would form the church and go and tell the world about the good news of Jesus. And God says, it's okay. Sit in your questions. Sit in your doubts. Sit in your fears. I'll meet you there. And I'll meet you there with peace. And I welcome your questions. I welcome your fear. And I welcome your doubts. It's pretty reassuring. Because we all get to that place once in a while in our lives. It goes on, it says, Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand. Put it into my side. Stop doubting. And believe. Now, this phrase is interesting. It's easy for us to lean into the side of the story that caused Thomas to receive this nickname, Doubting Thomas. But again, I want you to see, 
This is a week long. And he says, peace be with you. Jesus' statement here isn't condemnation. Jesus' statement here was invitation. The language, the way we interpret, the way that we uh, bring this into our language, we use this word, stop doubting. But it's a little bit more of, move from unbelief to to belief. Come with me from a place of this unbelief and come with me to a belief. I think it's a little bit more of, listen, I know, Thomas, I know this is unbelievable. Come come and believe. This is why I preach. This is why I love telling the good news of Jesus. It's unbelievable. It's why I can't help but smile when I share the good news of Jesus. I get it. The resurrection of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, the hope that God loves each and every one of us, wants his mercy and love and his grace to live out within us and through us, through the work of Jesus and through the power of the Holy Spirit, it's pretty unbelievable. So I invite you, come and believe. I did. And I don't regret that decision a day in my life. I still have doubts and I still have fears. I still have questions. Those questions come right along that faith to believe this unbelievable thing. And why? Because I continue to see Jesus. Listen, listen to this. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus saw Thomas's questions, his hesitation as a starting point. He invited Thomas to enter this place of belief. And then we see Thomas here accepted the invitation and he believed. And at that moment, Thomas would find, just like the other disciples, that this is the Jesus, is the same Jesus that he had known. This resurrected, glorified Jesus was the same Jesus he had always known, but he saw something else too. And that is the reality that Thomas testified to. Thomas said, my Lord and my God. Thomas the one who took a week to process all of this with faith and doubt and questions is the one who in this book says the most profound statement of belief. Jesus was his savior. Jesus was his friend, his teacher. And Thomas says, he's also my God. Now, still not fully understood yet here. We're gonna see this fleshed out through theology. God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit will begin to come into view. But that's what Thomas is beginning to say. This is the foundation of that understanding about God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That when we look at Jesus, we are seeing God. This is profound. And in light of that reality then, he also declared that Jesus was Lord. Lord and God. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Now my note on this is that when we see Jesus for who Jesus really is, we don't simply accept the truth as some kind of intellectual box to check. When we see Jesus for who Jesus really is, everything changes and Jesus is placed into position of Lord of our lives. 
is not just a surface understanding. I believe this. This story seems true. I'll take this unbelievable thing and I'll move it into the believable box. Instead, what I say is I have seen Jesus. And this unbelievable thing has become the reality of my life. This unbelievable thing has become the thing which when everything else I think about, this is the filter which all of that now feeds through. Jesus now has moved from a thing that I can intellectually believe in, good teacher, savior, died on a cross, the unbelievable idea of the resurrection. I may begin to say I believe that now, but then I say, now that I believe, he has now moved into Lord. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Because you have seen me, you have believed. His belief, his belief is huge. His belief is not, I just believe in who you are. He says, the belief leads me. You are my God. You are my Lord. When we believe, we stop pretending to be God when we meet the real Jesus. When we believe, we stop pretending to be king when we meet the real Jesus. When we believe, Jesus becomes our king and our Lord. When we meet the real Jesus. Now listen again. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And this is the setup. This is John setting up that he's about to break the fourth wall. He's not rebuking Thomas for his questions. He's encouraging those of us who will come later. He's saying we won't see Jesus in the same way, but we receive the same invitation to believe in the risen Christ. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Then he breaks the fourth wall and then he offers us this invitation. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John is saying the story of Jesus is an invitation to believe, to lean in, to bring our doubt, our questions with us as we explore the way of Jesus. And it's true. We won't see Jesus the way Thomas saw Jesus, but we can still see Jesus. If we open our eyes and if we open our hearts, we will see Jesus in the way he works in and through our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit, transforming our lives, transforming the world around us. When we give our lives to Jesus as Lord and God, we will see him. Again, this is why I love the good news. This is why I smile. I have seen the transforming power of Jesus in people's lives. I have seen the way the resurrected Jesus works through people, through others. I have seen Jesus. Where I have seen grace and mercy and love, I have seen Jesus. I have seen Jesus in my own life as he has worked through my life, as I continue to, to learn to live with open hands and, uh, and open hands turned over to receive, to allow Jesus to continue to work. And where I've seen love and grace and mercy in my life, I have seen Jesus. And that's my invitation to you as well. Come and believe and come and see Jesus. I don't have to offer you a money-back guarantee on that because I know 
that when you give your life to Jesus, as King and Lord, you will see Jesus. Now, if you follow Jesus, I have some questions. Are you living a life changed by encountering the resurrected Jesus? Is your faith right now more of an intellectual acceptance or a cultural consideration? Or are you testifying to the reality that Jesus is Lord and God of your life? What does it look like to daily wake up and say, my Lord and my God? And if you don't know Jesus, if you don't follow him, I invite you to come. Not with all the answers or afraid that you don't have all the answers, but just ready to experience the risen Christ. I invite you to join us as we explore the stories, the meaning of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. I invite you to bring all your doubts, all your questions, all your fear, and believe that God will meet you right there amid that and show you Jesus. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. By believing, you may find the joy that comes through encountering the risen Jesus. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful for this story of Thomas who questions, who, who, who has doubts, who wonders, can this be true? God, for us, may we meet you there. May we find peace in our questions. May we truly explore the way of Jesus. Asking, what does it look like to believe this? And then amid that, may we trust that we will meet the real Jesus, the risen Jesus, who has the power to transform all of our lives and this world through peace and love and mercy and grace. And it's your name that we pray today. Amen.